This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the Open Pediatrics World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Judy Palfrey, the Director of Global Pediatrics Program in the Department of Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. This is one of a series of forums being hosted by Open Pediatrics on global health issues. We've chosen to focus on post-disaster children's mental health. We're doing this because of the increasing incurrence of disasters, the fact that they can happen absolutely anywhere, and also that they affect disproportionately with a profound effect on the most vulnerable in our societies, which is especially true for women and children. But there is an emerging understanding in child health of the mental health consequences of disasters. There are now a number of interventions and best practices in child health and mental health professionals around the globe can apply these. With me today to discuss this topic is Dr. Duncan Maru. He's the co-founder and the chief strategy officer and a board member of Possible, an NGO that provides medical care in Nepal. Duncan is also a faculty member at the Harvard Medical School and at the Brigham and Women's Division of Global Health Equity. He practices part-time on the Complex Care Service at Boston Children's Hospital. Also joining me is Dr. Myron Belfer, who is professor of psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School and the Children's Hospital. He was the senior advisor on child and adolescent uh, mental health at the World Health Organization and he's dealt with issues related to mental health for children worldwide. Welcome. Duncan, you have personally experienced one of the worst earthquakes in Nepal. Can you share with us the impact of this on children and families and your experience? Yeah. The, I was, the, the earthquake was certainly one of the most challenging and tragic events uh, in a country that has suffered a series of tragic events over the last several decades. I was there in Nepal in the far western part of the country on April 25th and we felt just some slight shocks. Uh, we, we, in my work, uh, we uh, were at a government-owned hospital in which our organization independently manages that hospital on a public-private partnership. And so I was surrounded by a number of our leadership team and, and our clinicians and nurses. And what was, in that immediate period, what was so challenging was the lack of information, where we, if the, the earthquake happened right around noontime. And we, st we immediately, some of our staff got text messages from uh, some of their relatives that saying something, that this awful event had happened. And, and then over the course of the day, we got our, each sort of layers of our telecommunications infrastructure, which is something in the far west of Nepal we had invested in heavily, 
it, they sort of went down. And so we were at a point throughout the course of the first 24 hours where we didn't know whether 1,000 people had died, whether 10,000 people had died, whether 100,000 people had died. And so there's just that sense of confusion. Again, we weren't in the the epicenter, or we were over 300 kilometers away from the epicenter. It takes 30 hours for us to get from where we are to Kathmandu. And, uh, and, and yet that, that experience of confusion, and then also that immediate sort of sense of, of loss and experience of loss. Fortunately, none of our staff members, we have about 120 uh, full-time employees, uh, all, all based in the far west, and uh, none of their, they, we, none of our staff had lost any lives or had uh, lost any loved ones. Um, and, and yet there was this sort of national sense of, of mourning and loss immediately. And I recall one of, one of our staff physicians, a young, uh, young doctor who had recently about maybe graduated from medical school about two or three years before, and he came to me in tears saying that Sundara, this, this large it, sort of iconic white tower that uh, centuries old in Nepal, that had fallen, and, and uh, in, in, in that instant, some over 200 people had lost their lives, and 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 at the same time, this this and a, a large number of other very deeply important spiritual and cultural structures had had been destroyed. So you had this loss of both the past and the present uh, at the same moment, and and that was incredibly difficult for our our team and for so many of my colleagues. Um, I. Subsequently, traveled from the far west to uh, back to Kathmandu uh, over, and it, it and it was a and it was an eerie experience because where we were, life was sort of just going on, but we knew where where we were headed was going to be an area of great uh, devastation, and. Uh, and and that was that was certainly mentally a, a, a very a challenge, spiritually a very challenging uh, experience for myself and the colleagues that were uh, traveling with us. We started entering into a uh, this, uh, this sort of chaos of of what had just uh, transpired, and so I know that the discussion today is about about how a disaster might affect the mental health of children and. I'll just say it was, again, for somebody who really didn't feel the, the sort of effects as dramatically or as tragically as so many of the families, it, it's, it's very difficult to describe how, how awful a scenario has been for uh, many, many families, many children, uh, many parents um, throughout, the, throughout the affected areas of the country. So we know that when something like this happens, there's confusion, there's displacement, the living conditions that people end up in are, are just terrible. Can you tell us just a little bit about the, the sort of magnitude of what happened with the, uh, the Nepal disaster, just as an example of yeah. what, what so, we see? So the, there were over 8,700 deaths that occurred as a, as a result of the earthquake. And as with many uh, disasters that happen in settings of poverty, 
we don't we often don't have very precise statistics, and it's it's particularly troubling to to think that that we that people may that there are absolutely people who died for whom their lives are essentially unaccounted for, and and the economically the the country is, is has as a such a has such a weakened economy for a number of a number of uh, deep historical and political reasons but it's a it's an economy of 20 billion dollars uh, a year gdp i mean that's that's far less than even the smallest state economy in the united states uh, as an example and for a for a country of 30 million people and uh, nearly um, nearly half of the entire economy is expected to have sustained uh, sustained losses. So, so somewhere on the order of nine billion dollars is, and and it may even be as far as the cost of this. So the the cost of this, while actually relatively small compared to the costs of say the the Japan Japanese uh, tsunami of two thousand eleven, on a per, relative to the size of the country, the size of the economy, it's just it's it's incredible. Um, so really massive. So. Um, Let's just turn now to the audience to ask a question. And when you respond, could you please leave your city and country? Have you or any of your colleagues been in a disaster? What mental health challenges do you or do they feel are most important to address after a disaster? So um, let's just step back for a second and ask why it is that we're focusing on this today. Uh, the reason is that we're seeing these disasters, we're getting reports of these disasters uh, increasingly in this century. And uh, the impact of these disasters, as you can see uh, in Nepal, is uh, uh, stunning. Uh, and the, the kinds of things that we see, obviously, are death, injuries, loss of property. We see displacement and loss of livelihood. And they hit the vulnerable populations more frequently and with greater impact. Um, let's just look at uh, some information on that. The IRC uh, has actually tracked since to, uh, around the turn of the century uh, the impact uh, of how many people are killed by disasters. And then they've looked at that in terms of low human development versus high versus very high. Uh, and the, uh, the difference is sixfold in some of the, the years that we've seen. So that it's almost a perfect storm when uh, a disaster hits a vulnerable area. Uh, the, uh, the preparedness, the, uh, the response, uh, is just very, very different uh, in, uh, if you would contrast, for instance, Haiti and Chile. Uh, same kinds of, of earthquakes, preparedness in one, no preparedness in the other, much more poverty, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in fact, in, in this particular slide, uh, that green is by far uh, got to be mm. Haiti. And I, I would just add that I, I appreciate your use of the term Disasters, as opposed to natural disasters, and I think your graph, graphic here really highlights this: that that the the large-scale disasters and loss of life is are largely ultimately the result of 
some form of lack of preparedness or some form of ultimately the fallibility of humans in our societies. And, and, and I think that, that, again, the Nepal case is, is very telling of that where the, the deaths were, yes, the proximal cause uh, was the earthquake, but the root causes were poor governance around building codes and infrastructure and uh, lack of livelihoods and lack of financial means by which to build well and build safe homes and build safe, uh, safe institutions. And we can see here uh, that this is just very, very dramatic no matter what kind of disaster it is. So that the, the low development, the um, areas of poverty, the areas of, of poor governance, as, as you indicate, uh, really set uh, populations up, uh, whether it's uh, uh, volcanoes or windstorms or, uh, or earthquakes or droughts or, or floods. Uh, and of course, within those populations are vulnerable uh, women and children. Mm. So, and this uh, is uh, the reason that we want to emphasize a little bit what happens to, uh, to our children, particularly uh, in, in these situations. And obviously, uh, in terms of, of physical effects, there's death, there's lo loss of a parent, putting someone in an orphan uh, status, there are crush injuries, there's all, all kinds of difficulties uh, when there's lack of medical services. Um, but we also have uh, the mental health effects and the, just the impact of being through uh, something like this. We all have a normal reaction. Uh, and uh, children are no different. So it's a shocking event. Uh, there's loss, there's confusion, there's displacement. Uh, and then, as I think Myron will, will talk to us a little bit about in, in a minute, uh, when we move people to uh, uh, facilities to take care of them, there's overcrowding, there's all kinds of problems in, in the displacement. So we do know something about uh, how these things affect children. And uh, we do know and, and have been learning, really looking at this and pretty much since the, the Turkey uh, earthquake many years ago and UNICEF coming in, uh, that children react in very specific ways and, and that the, the, the timing of that you can almost predict. So within the first 72 hours, children are surprised, they're even numb. They're very disoriented, they're, they're lost, they're scared, they don't know where they are, and we often see sleep disturbances. And parents can be you know, very distressed that the child can't sleep, they're, they're waking up and they're, they're anxious. In the first month, they regress. If they're a four-year-old, they become a three-year-old. If they're a three-year-old, they become a two-year-old. So they'll, they'll begin to do things like bedwetting and baby talk and thumb-sucking, things of that sort, and they cannot bear to be alone, they're scared. Uh, they have appetite loss and sleep disorders. All of this is normal uh, reaction and, and the kinds of reactions that, that every child is going to have. Later on, if we, if we follow the children out, whatever kind of disaster it is, they're, they're going to be a little bit anxious about going to school. Uh, they're going to have headaches and body pains, food refusal, excessive uh, eating. Uh, and then repetitive play, sometimes uh, playing out the traumatic event. But all of this is normal. It's just normal behavior, and over time it will dissipate, and, and particularly if, if the parents know this, which is, which is one of the things as, as mental health uh, and child health providers, we need to uh, do the anticipatory guidance. This is going to happen. It's not bad. It doesn't mean your child is sick. On the other hand, um, there are some differences between boys and girls. Boys are going to act out more. 
uh, girls are going to become a little bit more withdrawn. Uh, and then finally, uh, and this is in Myron's bellywick, but I'll just set you up a little bit. Um, for children who do have, are more vulnerable, uh, they may have exaggerated and extended responses, including post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And that's probably kids who have more severe exposure, uh, they may have more of an underlying mental health disorder to begin with, or they don't have, an adequate, they don't have adequate support during the, the time of, of, of the, the problem. So uh, we also know that children with developmental disorders, abused children, children of health conditions, uh, and children who are at the temperamental extremes, the shy children and, and the, uh, outgoing, the very outgoing children, may, may be hurt more at, at the time. So these are uh, little tips that we've learned uh, over time, particularly through the American Academy of Pediatrics with the disaster courses and so forth. And the reason I'm sharing this is uh, at the time of the uh, 2010 uh, Haiti and Chile uh, events, um, I actually went to some of uh, these places to share with parents uh, these kinds of pieces of information. And I, I understood back from the, the families and the teachers that this was really helpful to be grounded in, in this small thing to do, but a, a kind of thing that, that we could do. But what uh, we'd love to do now is, is turn now to the audience to ask a question. And when you respond, could you please leave your city and country? What practices do you have in place at your hospital for evaluating and treating child mental health in a post-disaster period? But what uh, we'd love to do now is, is turn to you, Myron, the real expert on this. Uh, you've had the opportunity to observe so many of these terrible disasters. You've worked with the World Health Organization. You've thought deeply about this. You've written about it. Can you share with us some of the best practices that, that we're now learning? I'm very pleased to do that, Judy. Um, I think it's uh, very important to understand that uh, there are guidelines that exist now. The World Health Organization, the United Nations, and some other uh, groups ha have developed guidelines such as the SPHERE guidelines uh, that are well accepted uh, internationally. Uh, there's also been an interagency inter task force uh, on guidelines for responding to disaster. Uh, these present uh, information uh, that has been well vetted well, well discussed by a, a variety of individuals. Uh, it's important to understand that, but then I think all of these guidelines have to be adapted for the local environment. In other words, each environment has its own unique uh, issues. In other words, and it's uh, not appropriate to simply take one guideline developed for one setting and assume that it's perfectly appropriate in the other setting. It, it's very important to consider best practices in general, but more important, I think, in a way, is to not do harm. In other words, uh, a big uh, worry uh, in responding to disasters is to not do harm. And the reason I say that is that responding to disasters is, uh, in a way, analogous to an unregulated industry. Okay, uh, There are many people who respond to disasters uh, with a good deal of background, uh, understanding what's an appropriate response, uh, but there are non-governmental organizations and other agents who respond without much understanding of child development, of uh, uh, abnormal development, of normal development, and they do things that may inadvertently, uh, I hope inadvertently, uh, do harm to children. Uh, they may expose them uh, to stress, 
they may uh, intervene too aggressively, uh, which in itself becomes a trauma for the children who've already been traumatized. So there are many general considerations uh, in this idea of doing no harm for children. When it comes to thinking about what is uh, really appropriate, in other words, uh, we have to think about what is the developmental age of the child. In other words, what's really appropriate for the child. Uh, and be sensitive to what you suggested before is pre-existing conditions. Some children are clearly more vulnerable for, than others. Uh, children with pre-existing mental disorders, in other words, uh, uh, are particularly vulnerable. And for instance, in the uh, barracks in uh, Indonesia after the tsunami, uh, we saw a young girl running around, running around, and people said, oh, uh, you know, she's hyperactive, in other words, uh, uh, or maybe she's retarded. Uh, but fortunately, we were able to see her uh, and do a diagnostic evaluation. And the reality was that she was psychotic, in other words, and uh, it had been perhaps present for a longer time, but in any event, uh, it was amenable to treatment. In other words, and once it was treated, in other words, it made a big difference. To leave a child like that untreated can be very disturbing in the context of a barracks, in other words, in the context of any sort of disaster where people are preoccupied with a lot of other issues at that time. Uh, one of the things that I'm concerned about, in other words, in terms of uh, responding, in other words, in terms of best practices, is understanding what the environment is for the children. In other words, uh, uh, there's a picture that I have of the barracks, in other words, with uh, children who look very happy. You can see them there. Uh, but look at the environment that they're living in, in other words, at that time. Uh, that sewage that's running down in those uh, uh, side places. They have virtually nothing to play with, in other words, uh, uh, and they have an absence of clothing, in other words, an absence of parenting, absence of supervision. Uh, all things that are necessary for normal development under any circumstances, uh, but the problems are magnified in the confines of a barracks and in a post-disaster situation where people have been displaced, in other words, and uh, there's a lot written uh, about toxic environments. Uh, and these barracks and other places where people are placed after disasters often become a very toxic environment. So we don't know what the trajectory of development is for these children. The best thing we can do is, as a best practice is provide stability for them, uh, provide uh, security, uh, uh, provide education if they're older, uh, provide a, a connection with their family or with a school institution if that's possible. Uh, anything that normalizes uh, the environment for the child uh, is something that is uh, very, very important. Uh, so in addition, in other words, I think we have to also consider uh, the period after the acute emergency. What happens uh, after that first month? In other words, uh, too often, I'm afraid, uh, that when the television cameras go away, in other words, uh, when the appeal for funds uh, uh, subsides, uh, there's not the attention uh, for what's necessary to intervene, to support families at that time. Because many of the families are actually more vulnerable, in other words, after this initial phase, as they come to the realization that uh, they don't have the economic means they had before. Uh, they're cut off from their institutions. Uh, the schools may not be in place. And therefore, all these institutions have to be rebuilt so that they can normalize uh, their environments. The parents themselves are stressed. 
Okay, so when we think about what to do for the mental health of children, we have to realize, uh, as it is under any circumstance, uh, that if the parents are not feeling comfortable, they're not feeling uh, hopeful for the future, it's going to be difficult for the children to have that same uh, feeling. There are some also very specific kinds of problems that come up in this uh, period where we need to intervene as best practices. Uh, one of the problems that comes up often uh, when we see uh, money coming into barracks uh, following displacement, following uh, a natural disaster, any kind of disaster, is that the money is utilized in perhaps the wrong way. In other words, that we see money siphoned into the purchase of alcohol, drugs, uh, motorcycles, and correspondingly, uh, we see the death rate increases or the rate of violence increases, in other words, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, counterproductive, uh, certainly not on the trajectory that you want to go, which is uh, to heal people, in other words, and to give them a sense of uh, normalcy. Uh, in this next slide, you can see uh, what happens uh, when uh, the response uh, dwindles. In other words, these youngsters originally had uh, people with them playing games. In other words, uh, uh, but after the people left, in other words, the play area is no longer functional, and these kids are on their own. Where should they be? They should be in school. Uh, but unfortunately, there isn't a, a good school near them. In other words, there isn't any school near them uh, because the barracks has been isolated from the rest of the community. They've been displaced. In other words, uh, we found in Indonesia, as I think you know very well, uh, that displacement from your uh, place where you used to live is one of the critical factors in, other words, in stressing uh, individuals. So these kids have been displaced. They don't have the same uh, function. In the next slide, you can see uh, the environment. Uh, this looked nicer uh, initially, in other words, um, but uh, like in many places, the barracks that were built were built out of plywood. Plywood doesn't survive very well in a tropical environment. <laughs> so gradually there's a degradation of the environment for the entire family. And with that uh, comes a feeling of hopelessness, uh, depression, in other words, uh, um, and the children gradually may withdraw. In other words, uh, they may not feel hopeful. Since the barracks themselves may be isolated, they don't get to school. And when they do get to school, in other words, often the education comes in a form that may not be culturally appropriate. In other words, so uh, the UN has a school in a box. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, seen the school in a box, but it's a big plastic cylinder that comes out. Uh, it's not often culturally appropriate. In other words, uh, uh, or sometimes children go and uh, the grade that they're put in is not appropriate for where they were before. So education no longer becomes a positive uh, experience uh, for them at that particular time. So many of these things come together. And while we're concerned about post-traumatic stress disorder at one end of the spectrum, what we're equally concerned about are garden variety uh, mental problems. Uh, they're really mental health problems, anxiety, uh, depression, uh, kinds of uh, problems that can be dealt with. In other words, where you can train people that you don't have to be a psychiatrist uh, to deal with helping people to deal with their anxiety, with their depression, uh, with other kinds of problems that they may have. Uh, it really takes, though, a sensitivity and a recognition that your children have these problems. And there are training programs that can really help uh, to increase the literacy about this uh, type of problem. And the interventions then, in other words, the best practices, 
are to not be overly intrusive, uh, to not go up to children and say, oh, you must feel terrible. No, it's, uh, that was a terrible thing you experienced. Uh, how was it to see somebody who was dead? No, it's, uh, that really doesn't soothe and help the children heal. No, it's, it can be more uh, traumatic uh, for the children. Uh, likewise, there are some interventions that seemingly are innocuous, uh, but they may be quite counterproductive. Uh, one NGO that I saw in a uh, disaster situation uh, in Thailand, uh, they were doing cranial massage. Now, I'm sure the cranial massage must feel quite good. On the other hand, is it really an intervention uh, to deal with any particular psychological problem? In Turkey, uh, there was an intervention uh, where they put children in one of these bubbles where they bounce up and down. It's often used for parties. In other words, uh, uh, one hour in the bubble was supposed to cure you of your post-traumatic stress disorder. I think there's very little evidence uh, for that. Uh, yet, because it's an unregulated industry, in other words, we don't have often the kind of vetting that's necessary. And, and lastly, I think that we need to build uh, a legacy. Uh, when we have so many people coming in who have the resources and sometimes the knowledge for programming, uh, we need to leave something behind uh, that's positive, uh, either through training, uh, through uh, integrating schools with health facilities, in other words, uh, uh, to try to build a, a capacity, as uh, Duncan was saying, in other words, one of the problems with disasters is it shows up the weaknesses, in other words, in the overall infrastructure, in other words, that's present. And often there's already been a pre-existing weakness in the mental health infrastructure in just so many of these areas. So there's uh, both an opportunity as well as uh, uh, the downside of what's uh, occurred. And lastly, I think a really important mental health point, and Duncan alluded to it, uh, uh, but didn't say it specifically about himself, was that your personal experience, in other words, uh, uh, is in itself uh, a mental health issue. In other words, how uh, to not burn out, how to not be so adversely affected. It's very interesting that the half-life of people working in disasters is relatively short. In other words, uh, uh, because of the difficulty that they have, in other words, in terms of coping uh, with the kind of stresses uh, that they sort of face. And I think a, a story that was most uh, uh, important for me to understand was in China, or when there was a Sichuan earthquake, uh, we did an uh, assessment and we spoke to the teachers there. And the teacher said, well, you know, we're expected to do this for the children and this for the parents and this for the school. Uh, but nobody's asked us uh, what we need. In other words, uh, we've also suffered loss. In other words, we also have certain needs. And I think you find that in many of these disaster areas that the people who are being asked to provide care, in other words, uh, if they're not from the outside, have also suffered a lot of the same stresses that the people who are intended uh, have. In closing, uh, one of the consequences of what I mentioned in terms of uh, uh, the expenditure of money is that this is the barracks uh, one year later, okay? Uh, and what it speaks to, uh, unfortunately, uh, is uh, the lack of involvement in men in uh, more productive uh, enterprises. There was no work for them. No, it's, uh, uh, there was a great deal of alcohol abuse uh, and a, a good deal of uh, in other words, uh, uh, violence, violence towards women. In other words, uh, it's not shown in this particular picture, uh, but we saw women who had uh, suffered a good deal 
of physical abuse. Uh, and uh, you see also a great, great deal of pregnancy. Some wanted, some maybe not wanted. Hmm. I'd like to turn now to the audience to ask our colleagues around the world a question. When you reply, could you please state your city and country location? The question is this. How much of a challenge is it for you in your setting to get across the idea that children have a mental life? Myron, you've talked about reestablishing routines for children. Uh, and I know that one of the experiences we had in, in Chile uh, was that based on all the information up till that point, and, and particularly the, the information from UNICEF and so forth, uh, the Chilean government uh, set up a big telethon uh, to open schools. And they, they were able to fund a school for every single area that had been uh, devastated. And uh, the, the country just poured money out to, to do this. Uh, and actually, the interesting thing was they used containers. They used uh, ship containers. Uh, and uh, you can make a school out of uh, four ship containers or six ship containers. Um, and that certainly seemed to be a way to reestablish some uh, normalcy, even for the children who were in uh, camps. Mm -hmm. But talk just a little bit more, and, and, and both of you, in, in terms of uh, returning to normalcy for children and how important that is. I think school is the environment that children uh, are used to, uh, that's supportive for them. Uh, it's also the environment where they socialize. In other words, uh, it's the environment uh, uh, that bridges a lot of issues for children. Even when the home is a difficult place, the school can be a, a very supportive environment for a child. Uh, unfortunately, in other words, in a disaster situation, uh, schools may be destroyed. In other words, and uh, there's really the need uh, to reconstitute those schools. Uh, it's helpful, in other words, if the school can be reconstituted as close to the children as possible so that it doesn't become uh, another trauma to try to get to the school, in other words, or the children being put at risk uh, in the school. I think also, uh, as I may have mentioned before when talking about best practices, uh, the school should, when it's established, should be as close to the school that the children are used to, in other words, and that the curriculum that they have be as appropriate, age appropriate, uh, as possible. And the teachers, in other words, who are teaching in the school uh, should be supported uh, as well. I don't think you can ask a teacher to go back into the school in a disaster situation uh, and teach as if nothing had happened. Okay, I think they have to be sensitive that some children are going to have the kind of psychological responses that we uh, talked about before, uh, and they have to be prepared to respond to that. Uh, one thing they have to also be very careful about is not extruding children because of some of these behaviors, but rather trying to embrace the children uh, and to provide that level uh, of support uh, for them. But schools are very, very important uh, structure in the community. In Indonesia, schools are not only important in terms of their educational uh, importance for the children, uh, but uh, as uh, you know that they're also the uh, housing of the pramuka, in other words, in Indonesia and similar kinds of uh, entities in other uh, societies uh, where children are uh, involved in activities uh, that reach out into the community. 
in other words, and, uh, or they involve religious activities. So the school is a central uh, component of normalizing the life of a child. We're going to show you the thoughts uh, of Doug Ehlers, who's pulled together community engagement efforts all around the globe. Doug Ehlers is a senior fellow at the Program on Crisis Leadership and a former lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also the founder of the Broadmoor Project and the Recupera Chile Project. These are collaborative redevelopment efforts devoted to rebuilding the disaster-devastated communities of New Orleans and Bio Bio Chile. Generally, we break uh, disaster uh, response and recovery into sort of four phases after a disaster. The first phase is the emergency phase or response phase, uh, which is immediately after the disaster. Then comes the restoration phase, uh, where you have the, the uh, bringing back of basic services, lifelines, utilities, uh, city services, and uh, things like temporary schools, temporary shelter, uh, temporary housing. Um, and then there is the recovery phase where you're doing the uh, rebuilding of the permanent infrastructure, rebuilding of permanent homes, uh, permanent public uh, buildings, uh, repairing roads and highways, bridges, etc. Then you have the betterment phase, which is sort of the fourth and final phase, which is um, really where you sort of make uh, improvements after a disaster. Um, now, the betterment phase does not always happen after a disaster, but in general, uh, people really want to see uh, improvements to either safety or quality of life after a disaster. And disaster, uh, while very tragic, does tend to have some opportunities that, that present themselves to build back better than before, uh, and that happens in the betterment phase. A lot of this, the research on this uh, comes from uh, Eugene Haas and Bob Cates. So what they identified through the research was of these overlapping phases, they each roughly have an order of magnitude uh, between them. Um, so the, for example, the restoration phase is about 10 times the length of the emergency phase, and the recovery phase is about 10 times the length of the uh, restoration phase. Uh, the betterment phase doesn't quite fit into this because it has such a long time frame. It can be 10, 15, 20 years to do betterment projects. For example, in San Francisco, uh, just last year, uh, they finally reopened the Bay Bridge um, as a uh, seismically safe uh, uh, structure. And that was after the uh, 20 years after the Loma Prieta earthquake of uh, 1989. Um, so uh, roughly speaking, the way we look at these phases is, for example, if the emergency phase takes four weeks, uh, then the restoration phase will take 40 weeks, and if there, then the recovery phase will take 400 weeks. So if, if we think about these, these curves, uh, they're each overlapping and they each have uh, slightly different shapes to them. So the emergency phase has a, is a very steep curve. It has a very steep left tail, uh, peaks very quickly, and then uh, falls off fairly quickly uh, as the emergency response uh, phase wraps up. And um, the 
whereas the restoration phase is a slightly longer curve, uh, still fairly steep, has a, a fairly uh, steep uh, left tail and a uh, but it too peaks fairly quickly and then uh, tails off uh, on the right uh, tail fairly quickly. Uh, the recovery curve is a, is a much wider curve. Um, it has a slower, it's uh, a little slower to ramp up on the left tail, uh, has a very sort of broad hump in, in the middle in terms of it takes a fairly long time as, as a lot of the work uh, takes place for permanent reconstruction. And then it actually has a fairly long right tail as things wrap up. Uh, construction projects can take years to, to, to complete. Uh, and then the betterment phase it is both the longest to ramp up with the longest left tail, the longest hump in the middle, and then the longest right tail as it winds down uh, even potentially decades later. Our goal in recovery management is to accelerate these curves, to make them as uh, ramp up on the left tail as quickly as possible, and to make the total uh, uh, size of the curve as, um, as short as possible uh, when measured um, sort of in a in period of time. So that uh, our goal is to begin recovery really day one after a disaster, try and get that left tail started immediately after the, the disaster, uh, and then accelerate that curve so that um, people are, that we eliminate suffering, we el eliminate loss, and we get people back into their homes, children back into schools, uh, we get infrastructure back running, the economy back running, businesses uh, back in and process people back to, to their place of employment uh, and return to a, a sense of normalcy or a sense of rebuilding of the social networks and the uh, things that are very important to reestablish after a disaster. When we look at recovery in the field of disaster recovery, uh, it's actually still a very nascent field. Um, uh, recovery was long ignored um, uh, as a field. There were not many, not a lot of attention paid to it and uh, very few professionals working in the field up until uh, Hurricane Katrina. Uh, prior to that, most of the emphasis went into the uh, emergency or response phase or the uh, restoration phase, um, which were uh, really about life-saving um, as opposed to the, the rebuilding and, um, and thinking about how to rebuild better after a, a disaster. Uh, so, but all of that changed with, with Katrina uh, when the United States was faced with one of the largest recovery uh, initiatives. Um, uh, recovery cost about $150 billion. Um, so it really focused a lot of attention on uh, on both the need for long-term recovery as part of the planning in advance of a disaster of how you think about and plan for uh, a disaster, as well as it required um, uh, 
an understanding of how to do it better. And so a whole field of, of disaster recovery research has emerged um, looking for the best practices uh, of how to rebuild uh, efficiently and effectively after a, a disaster. And uh, most importantly, how we can accelerate each of those uh, recovery curves and the, the phases of, of the recovery. Um, and so a, a whole field of disaster recovery management has, has now emerged and a body of knowledge and expertise is being, uh, being developed from that. One of the key learnings that we have, have, uh, that has come out of that in terms of the, uh, lessons learned has been the importance of, um, uh, mental health, especially for the vulnerable populations of, of children, uh, in each of the phases, the emergency, the recovery, uh, the response and the recovery phases and the betterment phases. Um, so the best practice uh, from disaster recovery management, we've come to understand that uh, we have to think about uh, child mental health and family mental health uh, throughout the entire uh, recovery process for um, it's really years and decades that we have to think about the impacts of a disaster and its recovery on the health and mental health of the community. So working uh, with Doug uh, in the post-disaster recovery of Chile, we've learned a great deal about community resilience and the key role that a few dedicated community advocates can have. Um, in Dichato, Chile, much of the community recovery has centered around the local school. Uh, and that's in part because the director of that school uh, has had a vision that a strong, reconstructed, recovered community uh, that we've been working together with him on, on Project uh, Recupera Chile, uh, that we could have uh, a school in reality, Escuela de Realidad, and that we would put a premium on health and mental health, on language and literature, and on love of the sea. Now that's the very sea that has raised up and has created many, many problems. But we've learned in Indonesia, when you put those fishermen in the farms and away from the sea, all they wanted to do was go back to what was their home, what was their livelihood. So uh, what we've been uh, doing for mental health uh, in uh, the uh, area of uh, uh, Chile is really to think about how to pull together mind and body uh, how to teach relaxation techniques, how to plant a school garden, uh, how to carefully identify family, social, and mental health needs with the use of a caseworker. Um, and the work of improving this in the, in the school has taken well over five years. We're just beginning to, uh, to see some improvements and uh, to, to see the, the, the community coming together. But I think I would add one last thing to your list, Myron, and that's persistence. Uh, because these are not small problems, they're pre-existing problems, then with the disaster on top. And so in, in order to be uh, helpful for the mental health of children, uh, I think any of us who are in child health or in, in child mental health, uh, it's a long haul uh, that, that we need to uh, be involved with. So really want to thank you all for thank you. Thank you. sharing with us such important contributions. Thank, Thank you. you very much.
This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.